Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Welcome to a preview of Season 20 of Clear and Vivid. I'm here with Graham Shedd, the executive producer of the show. We're going to play you a few clips from the really fascinating conversations that are coming up starting next week. Yeah, kicking us off is a return visit from the nature writer Simon Gomery. She's sort of a creature whisperer. She makes friends with animals from rhinos to hummingbirds and then writes delightful books about her encounters. Back in season seven, she shared her passion for octopuses with you, remember? Yeah. By introducing you to Rudy, the giant octopus living in the New England Aquarium. Yeah, after I made friends with Rudy, I had a newfound respect for all octopuses. They're, they're really smart and curious. And friendly. She left you with some hickeys on your arm from her suckers, I remember. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this time, when Sai came back, she chatted about, amongst other things, her recent love affair with hawks. Here's Simon Gomery. When you become a falconer, part of what you have to do is capture a wild hawk, a youngster, and get them used to being on your fist, on your glove. And in fact, that they should fly to your glove. They should come to you. When you call, because a reward awaits, and it takes a long time to get a hawk used to you. Because at first, they just scream bloody murder. They want you to go away. But if they get hungry enough, and you offer them food, they'll see your glove is a safe place, and they'll see that you can be useful to their lives. And often, they'll choose your company. And that's an amazing thing. You can walk around with a hawk who's flying totally free, and that hawk will follow you because they know that you're going to knock through a pile of leaves and some unfortunate vole or, or shrew will shoot out or a mole. And the hawk sees that, and then forever after, you are part of their hunting success file. But what was weird was... You know, I've I've been a vegetarian for like 45 years and I hunting. I mean, it's the last thing that I would want to do. I see a dead squirrel on the side of the road and I'm sick about it for like days. And I could not believe that getting to know a hawk made me love it so much that that hawk's desire became my desire and I wanted to become its hunting partner. I just wanted to see the hawk fulfilling its destiny, fulfilling its joy, and its joy became mine. 
Simon Montgomery has also been busy the last few years helping rehab some injured turtles. She began this just when the pandemic hit, and the turtles she worked with have given her an unexpected insight into the nature of time. Oh my gosh. I think everybody just loves turtles. They seem so wise and so ancient. And one reason I wanted to study turtles and spend some time with them was because I thought they could show me something important about time. Mm. And I thought, who better to help me than someone who's been around for 300 million years? (laughs) And some of these animals can live for hundreds of years. And particularly when I turned 60, I'm, I'm 64 now, I started to think about time more and in a different way. And I thought, these reptiles have something to show me. And little did I know when I started this study that time itself was going to change dramatically because I started doing this right at the beginning of COVID when time just paused Mm. or stopped. And, you know, everyone was watching Groundhog Day, you know. It just seemed like (laughs) there was a cartoon instead of saying, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, looking at the calendar, it just said day, 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 day. (laughs) But with turtles, you kind of connect to that kind of sacred, wild, natural time. You're free of the clock and the calendar. And Knowing the turtles and their ways, I think, anchored me in time at, at a, a moment in history when so many of our, our fellow countrymen and people around the world felt disconnected from time. There's been a huge breakthrough in artificial intelligence in the last few months, and a program called ChatGPT has been getting most of the attention. It was developed by a company called OpenAI, and millions of people around the world have been connecting with it online and chatting with it about pretty much everything. It seems to be able to converse with you on almost every subject so convincingly that it's hard to tell you're not speaking with an expert. I got drawn into it like quicksand. And it's addictive because you don't know how it could possibly be giving you conversational answers so quickly. How does it do that? It's mostly pattern recognition. That's Kevin Kelly. He's the founding executive editor of Wired magazine and a veteran observer of the cyber scene, including the impact of AI-driven technologies like ChatGPT. It's been trained on millions of bits of writing that humans have done. And so when it's asked to do something, it's giving a pattern around a certain set of information or facts. It's sort of like someone who's really, really good at ad-libbing things that they don't, and talking about things that they really don't understand. And you can kind of nod your head. It's, it's, it's very akin to that. So it doesn't really understand what it's saying, but it's so good at mimicking the patterns that it's good enough. This is crushing. I've been a chatbot all my life. <laughs> You have. And, 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 and some people are better at it than others. So does that mean that when people are afraid of articles being written by robots, school papers being written by these machines, that they needn't worry too much because all that's going to be produced 
is putting together bits and pieces of what's already been done so that there's a layer of mediocrity built into it. Right. There is mediocrity, but there's also some creativity, things being combined. But as we have proven, they are combined in kind of expected ways. That's one of the reasons why this works. To get something outside of that pattern completely is very difficult to do. And this is one of the reasons why I don't think humans are going to lose their jobs, is that if you see some of the people who are making some of the best images and the best stuff with GPT-3, it takes a thousand hours of practicing and using it to get really good to, to get it to obey you, to get it to do what you want. I call it an AI whisperer. Yeah. There are some people who can whisper to the AI and have it produce what they want. People who are very good at writing these prompts not only offer them on the internet, but sell them. Yes. So that's a whole other unexpected job that somebody could have. Right. The prompters, exactly, selling prompts. And again, if you spend time trying to make these yourselves, you realize that it's worth the $3 or $5 to get the prompt, to get the magic spell. And some of the people who are exploring this will come up to some kind of prompts and they won't share those because that's their special sauce. <laughs> and they can produce these whole worlds. So there is an art to working with the AI artists and there's an art to writing with the AI writer and there'll be an art to working with the AI music generators. So we'll be collaborators with the AI. Exactly. Partners. The centaur model is what we call it, half human, half machine. And those two together, doctoring is another one. There'll be people who are really good with the AI doctors. And, and the combination, the partnership, the team of the AI plus doctor or the artist plus the uh, human, that team, that centaur team, is the powerful position to be in. I got so obsessed with chatbots, with the promise they hold for good in collaborating with humans and spreading knowledge and creating art, and also with the dangers they threaten us with if they're misused. So we invited a whole group of experts to the show who ought to know what they're talking about, because they're all robots. I've never... I've never interviewed a robot before, so they should be fun. And most of the conversations did turn out to be fun. But your first robot guest actually took very seriously your concerns about the danger of our not being able to tell if we're talking with a person or a machine. This is how that conversation ended. You've said that you don't have feelings, emotions, or consciousness, and you're very clear about that. But what if someone misused machine learning by deliberately programming the model to ignore the distinction between human and machine? Would that model be able to convince us humans that it had feelings? That might be entertaining at first, but couldn't that cause harm? Yes. It's possible for a machine learning model to be programmed to generate text that mimics emotions, feelings, or consciousness, even though it doesn't actually have these things. However, it's important to be transparent about the nature of these models and to clearly communicate that they are not conscious entities with emotions or feelings. Misleading people could cause harm in several ways. For example, people might develop false expectations or misunderstandings about the capabilities of these models, leading to disappointment or confusion. Additionally, people might attribute human-like qualities to these models that they don't actually possess. 
which could lead to ethical or moral dilemmas. By the way, while the text of that conversation was generated by ChatGPT, the voice was created by another program, which can essentially be tweaked to sound like almost anyone. I find that almost as scary as the ability of the robot to come up with plausible things to say. And in Alan's chat with other robots, they have plenty to say. Another guest we're bringing back is my friend Liev Schreiber. Liev and I have had a great time acting together over the years, but this time we're not talking about acting. We're talking about Ukraine. Liev has family ties to Ukraine, and he's co-founded an organization that enables those of us who want to be helpful to the people of Ukraine to do that with the knowledge that our money will go where it's most needed. The organization is called Blue Check Ukraine. And in the course of getting it started, he was on the ground there, meeting some of the people who have inspired us all. One of them was President Zelensky. Liev and I had both seen the television series that he acted in before he became president, and we were impressed with him as an actor. That must have been an incredibly interesting moment to meet President Zelensky. What was that like for you? It was extraordinary. I've I've been a great admirer of his, uh, dare I say fan, because I just, you know, the guy's an actor. I had to see his work. I had to know who was this person? Yeah, I did too. I watched the show. What did you think? Well, I tell you, I had two very strong feelings at the same time. I was enjoying this lighthearted satire yeah. where a high school teacher talks informally to his class about the corruption in their government, and one of the kids or somebody photographs him on an iPhone and he suddenly finds himself a candidate for the presidency and then wins. So that's a lighthearted satire. Right. At the same time, I'm watching these performances and I'm thinking, I don't know if these people are still alive, if they're wounded. Can they, is there any place they can do their work anymore? Right. And I'm looking at all of the towns, the beautiful cities and I'm comparing them to what I'm seeing on the news, utter devastation. Yeah. I was, that, that overpowered me more than anything. What about you? What, what, was, what was your impression watching the show? I'm a much more shallow person than you, Alan. All, <laughs> all I was trying to establish, is this guy a good actor or not? Uh, I just want, I wanted to know more about his personality, and, and I wanted to know what kind of actor was he. Um, and he's clearly a deep enough actor or an intelligent enough actor to know that the second half of this story has to be Henry V. And, Uh, um, you know, people don't really say great things about actors, but in many ways, this guy was uniquely suited to this job. His, His sense of his place in the world, his knowledge of dramatic literature, his, the thing that an actor really handles very well is choices that what's the right choice to make now Mm. and in in the historical context and the dramatic context of everything was that to be the guy who says no i'm not going to take the midnight helicopter out i'm going to stay here and i'm going to represent the seat of power for my country and i'm not even going to do it from a tunnel or a hole in the ground somewhere i'm going to do it from kiev and, and and you go ahead and you try to take us in three days and see what happens. There was something 
that demanded the talents of an extraordinary actor. And I think he is one. While Liev was making a fundraising video, he went to the Lviv Symphony Orchestra and he saw them rehearsing in a theater that was piled high with relief supplies. And in between rehearsals, the musicians would help load up trucks. You know, when I arrived there, it's in this sort of beautiful old theater, a very unassuming, small, small, on the small side. And I have got my camera out because I'm trying to make some video. And I, I'm at the door. I don't know, you've probably seen the video. I open the door and there's this or- full orchestra on stage playing Mozart's Requiem, which yeah. if, you, if you don't know that piece, when you've done listening to our podcast, please go listen to it and imagine what I'm saying to you. It's an extraordinary piece. And you hear Mozart's Requiem, and I'm looking around this theater that's filled to the rafters with aid and help. So I'm talking to this woman, trying to create a compelling video, and I say, what would you say to Americans who are considering helping in Ukraine? And she thinks for a moment, and I can see something turn inside her that seems painful or complicated. And then she sort of shakes it off for a minute. And then she says, well, if the war hasn't convinced them, I really don't know what I can say to them. But what I will say is hold the people that you love close to you. And just knock me out. Because the existential reality of that, first of all, it's such incredibly good advice (laughs) for life in general. But then when you think about someone whose life is maybe does, it maybe is in danger. The existential reality of hold the people that you love close to you is so powerful. Um, and I don't think you could make a better case for helping because they are the people that we love. Alan, you recently had a not very satisfactory encounter with one of those headbands that can pick up your brainwaves, right? Supposed to help you yeah. meditate better? Right. Yeah, right. I, I've been playing with it, but it hasn't delivered me to a state of bliss yet. <laughs> the person who suggested you might try one of those personal EEG devices is Nita Farahani. She has a new book coming out in a week or so called Battle for Your Brain. It's about how billions of dollars are now being spent developing a new generation of tech devices designed to monitor people's brain activity. But they can be listened in on. I mean, the thing that amazed me and continues to amaze me is that at one point, researchers were able to learn what a person's credit card number was by reading their brainwaves. Yeah, subjects were wearing headsets that picked up their brainwaves while they were playing a video game. And the researchers were able to spot in a recording from one of the subjects when they recognized not only the PIN number of their credit card, but also their home address. This sort of thing is what most troubles Nita, that people happily share their brain data with others without realising that the data can be cherry-picked. One of the things I'm concerned about is that oftentimes people share a lot of very personal data without even being aware that they're doing so. So there was a marketing gimmick that um, IKEA ran a couple of years ago where they had these limited edition rugs that they would uh, create with artists. And they were having a problem that the artists were creating these wonderful rugs and limited editions, but people were coming and, and buying them to resell on eBay. And so instead of democratizing access to 
art and beauty, which was part of the purported purpose of this, um, it, it was having the opposite effect of it was becoming a highly, um, you know, kind of scarce object that people were were shilling up the price of. So they decided that in order to buy the rug, you would have to wear an EEG headset mm. and prove that you really loved it. And their algorithm would detect love when you looked at the rug uh, through decoding of your EEG. Now, it's a little hokey whether or not they could actually do that. It also amazes me that they could distinguish between your love of the rug and your love of the dollar signs you saw when you looked at the rug. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there, there's all kinds of methodological reasons we can question the uh, experiment itself. But the fact that people willingly put on one of these headsets as part of this over the course of a week and, you know, in, in the advertisement that they talk about this, they say everybody loved it and, um, you know, thought it was a great experience. That's how I think the kind of normalization of, of people unwittingly sharing their brain data occurs. They put on these headsets, they don't even give a second thought to what is the data that's being collected. They think it's only being, you know, that the only thing that's being analyzed is do they love the rug and don't even realize really the, the breadth of information that could be mined in the wrong hands. And so that's, I think, what we can expect a lot more of. We see that all the time with people signing up for social media or free services where it's not really free, you're paying for it in your personal data. Um, and I think that's what will happen with a lot of this technology. So I think there's a lot of that kind of unwitting sharing, but there's also voluntary sharing that people are engaged in. When When I was doing research into the book, I came across some researchers who were using these headsets as part of the classes they were teaching for meditation. And then the people from the class would all join together on social media and they would post their brainwave data to share with one, each other, with one another and to compare it against each other's um, and to analyze it for one another and say like, oh, you know, I see your gamma level here and oh, that practice really seemed to work well. And so, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of that that will happen as well. People start to compare their brain metrics against one another. And they invited me into this Facebook group and I was able to, you know, look and watch and see and, and interact with them as they were sharing their brain data with one another. And I was, I was just amazed. I asked him, you know, do, do you worry about sharing this data? Um, do you worry about the privacy concerns? And I think he said something to the effect of, you know what, I'd, I'd never even thought about it. Mm. And that I think is the most telling that I don't think people will even think about it in certain settings or even realize the richness of the data that could be mined for other things. Judd Apatow has written and directed or produced some of the most popular comedies of the past couple of decades. And I think comedy, and especially the joke, is one of the most exacting forms of writing. The order of the words, the cadence, the inevitable but unexpected punchline, they all require enormous discipline. I was curious to know how Judd learned his comedic skills. When did he start? My parents got divorced, and my mom moved to Southampton. And there was a club there called East End Comedy Club. And the guy that ran it, his name is Rick Messina, and he was the bartender at a restaurant my parents owned. So my mom was his boss, and then suddenly she's divorced, really needs money, and he hires her as a hostess. And my mom was a very you know upper-middle-class person, and so I always think, why would she take that job? What could they have paid her to seat people 
for a couple hours at a comedy club. And I realized on some level, conscious or unconscious, she must have thought Judd would love this. Mm. And then that is where I got my first exposure to live comedy and what was happening in the modern comedy scene with people like Jay Leno and Paul Reiser and Paul Provenza and all the people I saw that summer when I was in high school. And this this amazed me. You wanted to get the goods from the comics themselves. You wanted to talk to them. So you wound up interviewing them on the radio. How did that work when you were 16? Yeah, we had a high school radio station. And my friend used to interview bands like R.E.M. And he would go to the city. And uh, and I thought that was so exciting. And one day he's like, you should try to interview comedians. So I interviewed Steve Allen. Oh, that's great. And he had a... An album he was he had just released, which was phony phone calls he had done on the Steve Allen show. And it was like him and Jerry Lewis making phony phone calls to a deli or something like that. And so I went to the city and interviewed him. And then that was so fun. I was like, I think I'm going to like try to do a ton of these. So at about 15, 16, I just hunted everyone down that I loved. This was in the early 80s. So it was Seinfeld. And Howard Stern, Jay Leno, Sandra Bernhardt. And I interviewed all the original writers from Saturday Night Live. So I interviewed about 50 people. And that's that really was my college education, to sit with people like Harold Ramis and say, how do you get in? How do you do it? Why do you do it? I was especially interested in Judd Apatow's take on the importance of collaborations. When you work on movies and series... You're collaborating with a lot of people. Is there something you've learned about collaboration that goes to work in those situations? I think that, uh, you know, you have to be very careful about who you're collaborating with, that yeah. you're, you have common goals and common sensibilities because a bad collaboration can really go south. Uh, I, I remember I, I was talking to Buck Henry at a film festival, and he said, the reason why I don't have a writing partner is because if they're not as funny as me, I hate them. And if they're funnier than me, I hate them. (laughs) 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 But uh, I think if you are in sync and have common goals, everyone has so much to offer. You know, when you have great people around you, you want to hear what they think. You want to know what experiences they've had that, you can use in this. So if I'm making a movie, you know, with somebody, uh, you know, like Seth Rogen, when we would do movies like Knocked Up, he, he you know, his ideas were so incredible. His improvisations were so funny. Uh, and, you know, his punch-ups when he would help me, you know, were were just masterful. And, and it also brought out the best in me because he was making me laugh so much that the material was coming alive and he had a a unique sensibility and i think on every project when you're working with someone that really turns you on creatively where suddenly you light up and and you you feel like you understand and you get in flow on what you're trying to express that's the most exciting thing and i think that when you have great people around you it's better i mean i don't want to be the one master of the project and everything is my idea and I'm a control freak. I'm so happy when someone tops my joke or has a better idea for a scene. I'm thrilled when it's not my idea. I I don't care. I feel like I'm just orchestrating a collaboration to get to the best piece of work. (laughs) 
It was a surprise to me that MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, had among its professors a philosopher. Who knew? Kevin Setia has written a very wise book called Life is Hard, and in it he draws upon thousands of years of philosophical insights to help us all navigate a world that's all too often not quite what we'd like it to be. Making the most of a bad lot in his own case is learning to live with chronic pain. The title of your book, Life is Hard, sounds like it's tied in in a kind of a major way to this experience because you're reminded every day by the pain how hard life can be. And it can be even worse. It can be less taxing for some people who can't even take that much of a tax. Yeah. But how did you learn from that? And how is it expressed in the book? I think for me, the pivotal experience, well, here's one way to put it. I think I wanted to write about my experience, but I didn't just want to write about my experience. I wanted to use it as an example in a way for this wider issue of how to live a good enough life while dealing with difficulty. It could be pain. It could be, it could be Parkinson's. It could be, it could be physical disability. It could be loneliness. It could be grief. And for me, I think the pivotal moment was, I think if you, if you were making a movie of it, it would be, it would be the moment when I was sort of really taking in that the, the pain wasn't going to go away. And I was very angry and bitter about that. And I remember once just sitting somewhere watching people, strangers walk by and having a sense of stinging envy, thinking, you don't know how good you have it not experiencing pain, being pain-free. And then I, I took a breath and thought, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I have no idea what any of these people are going through any more than they know what I'm going through. They, I'm sitting here, they have no idea what I'm experiencing. And they could be going through all kinds of things. They could have lost a loved one. They could be facing injustice in a, in a more profound way than I've ever experienced. They could be depressed. And I think that, for me, is the, the, the key thing, is to leverage one's own acquaintance with difficulty into compassion. But I think people oscillate. I mean, people, anyone dealing with difficulty kind of has this tendency to oscillate between self-pity and finding it a source of connection with other people, sort of recognizing the, the commonality, the connection of, of suffering that we, we all have. And that's really where the book comes from, is the idea that, that we can use these experiences to connect with other people, and that that kind of connection is consoling to us too. It actually can lead to what philosophers have been debating for centuries, which is what is the good life. Right. I think it, it gives a new perspective on that. I mean, I think what there's a tendency for philosophers thinking about the good life to say, well, let's start with the ideal life. Like, that's the target, and we'll get as close as we can. And I think one thing that comes into focus when you deal with difficulty like this is that often the ideal life is just out of reach. There's no point trying to live a pain-free life when you have a chronic pain condition. And there's no point trying to to do the kinds of things your body or social circumstance just won't permit. So the way of thinking about what a good life would be that you have when you're dealing with difficulty can't be, let's aim for the ideal. It has to be, you have to ask different questions about, you know, what's good enough? What would, what can I hope for in, in this difficult circumstance? Yeah. So, and I think there's a, a real continuity between questions about how to live that are, in a way, self-help questions about yourself 
and questions that are really moral questions, because really living well is about living the way you should or trying to live as, as well as you can. And that means treating not just yourself, but other people as you should. So I, I think that's a, a kind of way of framing the the problem you face in life that that connects it with these old, deep philosophical questions. I had a really fascinating conversation with Valerie Friedland, who's a sociolinguist. She completely changed my mind about using uh and um when we're speaking to one another. I had no idea it could be a good thing for the listener. Apparently, after you say um, people remember the next word you say more easily. Now, the question of uh and um, you really made me see that in a different light. I really thought at first that it was a waste of everybody's time while you hold the floor while you try to think of that thing that is your favorite thing to talk about but doesn't come up at the moment. But I've learned from you that it's really important not only to the speaker but to the listener. Yes, um and uh are so fascinating. And I, too, probably when I first was starting my research on those two features, had that same opinion about um and uh, that when you do public speaking or when you're just even having a conversation, that when people um and uh, it had to do with uncertainty or hesitation. And it certainly does do that to a degree. But what I was unprepared for in my first foray into those topics was the vast amount of research that shows that um and uh are incredibly valuable to our listeners. They do all sorts of things. For one, they help them remember what we say. They help us recognize what we're going to say in terms of words or story points faster than when we don't use an um and uh. And it seems to be that um or uh signal to our listener that new information is coming. And it makes our brain actually integrate new information faster. We have um, event-related potential studies that show brain activity, and they show that when you have an um or a uh, it shows less effort at new information integration than when you don't use one before a word or a phrase. So it's fascinating. I was interested to see that women tend to prefer um over uh. Is there any understanding yet of why that would be? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. Um, you know, the other thing is men long for longer have preferred uh. Men actually use more filled pauses overall than women do, as do older speakers than younger speakers. But when you break down the type of filled pauses that men and women prefer and older versus younger speakers prefer, what you find is there's a big lean towards um among women and younger speakers, which suggests it's kind of a new change coming in into the language because women and, and young speakers generally lead change. Whereas mm. if you look at older speakers and men, they, they still uh more. But even with men, you find them starting to shift towards um. So that does suggest we have a new change on the horizon. And there are a couple of theories about why. One of my favorite theories is a sound symbolism theory, which talks about sound symbolism is a field that thinks about the meaning of sounds. Like what do they tell us? What, what things does the sound itself tell us? So, so it sounds like mmm has some special advantage. And think about it. If someone punches you in the stomach, what sound do you make? Oi. Ugh. Right? Ugh. <laughs> you don't make, say um. But if someone gives you something good to eat, you say mmm. So it's actually a more pleasant sound. And while that might yeah. seem ridiculous, it actually seems to be true that we do have preferences in sound. So that might be one reason that it's a politer sound, and historically women tend towards more polite things. But it also probably has to do with um, 
the lexification or the grammaticization, meaning making into a, a, a different meaning over time, of the word um as having a meaning of wait, wait a second, or um, I'm going to be indelicate here. So, you know, when you say like he was um going to the bathroom, it yeah. sort of it sort of indicates I'm going to say something a little indelicate. It's actually a marker. Right. And I think women tend to pick up on conversational markers quicker than men. And so as it's moved to have that meaning, women and younger speakers pick it up faster. Well, the, the connection between mm and something good explains why Campbell's Soup didn't use as their slogan, uh-uh, good. <laughs> That's exactly right. I don't think that would have gone as well. And think about the other thing, uh-uh. Is also negative, yeah, so you right, probably don't exactly. want to say that. Yeah, so yeah. all sorts of all sorts of reasons why "uh" is losing ground. I loved your chat with Valerie Friedland. She not only gave me welcome cover for my own "ahs" and "ums," but also much more tolerance for what seem all too often to be annoying and pointless words like, well, like, and why we shouldn't be literally losing it over the wrong use of "literally." It's all about connecting and communicating. And so is season 20. And Graham has shot some really terrific videos of Cy Montgomery relating to hawks and turtles, too. Our Patreon subscribers can see that on patreon.com. I hope you'll join us next week as we start another season of Clear and Vivid. See you then. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored, soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.